morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you, Mambo. <laughs> it's funny, I was talking to, um, to Scott backstage. I said, hey, last night you said it was Jumbo. And he said, yeah, there's actually two ways, right? So I'm going to make up my own way, Mambo Jumbo, right? There we go. We are now speaking Swahili, right? And we don't need an interpretation. That's for later in 1 Corinthians. All right. So, um, hey, great to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors. And I do want to welcome you here to our services. Uh, it's, it's so great. Uh, last night, I just got an email this morning from a couple uh, that was here last night. They're right there where you're sitting. And uh, they, they long time, you know, people at Rocky Peak, and uh, she has like a immune, kind of autoimmune uh, disorder thing, and so they've been very, you know, careful because of COVID, and I noticed them there last night, you know, when they had their masks on, and the first time I'd seen them in like, what, two and a half years or whatever, and she emailed me and just uh, said, you know, that was our first time back. It was so good to be home, something incredible about being here uh, and, and joining, and so uh, it is so good to have you here. And for those of you who are online, especially those brand new that maybe are, you're, just, you're visiting us online today, uh, I hope the time will come when you'll come in person because there's nothing like being in the house. Amen? <laughs> Amen. It's like that time of worship is just so awesome. It was last night. It was this morning. Man, it gets me fired up. Hey, I just want to let you know, before we go into time of teaching, I just want to let you know that next week I will not be here. Um, there's actually we have some very close friends um, that were in our life group that, uh, that are getting married next week, and they're doing a destination wedding. It's up uh, kind of in a vineyard outside of uh, Solvang, and so we're going to be there uh, with them uh, doing that, that wedding. And because of that, um, I thought, hey, let's make a trip out of it. And so I'm going on a motorcycle trip this week, right? And so you know how those go, right? Um, they're kind of dangerous. So I want to let you know just for a little prayer covering uh, from here, from a you know, couple thousand people, I thought it'd be helpful. Um, and so this one actually is going to be fairly tame as far as my trips go, at least at this point. Lynn said last night, uh, are you going off-road at any point? And I said, not as far as I know. Uh, and uh, that's when bad things happen to me when I go off-road. Um, but I'm, I'm going to go up to Refugio State Beach and camp out a couple nights there. And then I'm going to Yosemite uh, for three nights and then riding back on the day of the rehearsal to Sol outside Solvang. Um, and so um, I'm going to do something I haven't done before is that I am going to chronicle this, not in like a high, super high-tech way, but I'm going to chronicle this on my Instagram. And so if you're like, uh, kind of like, oh, I wish I could go on one of these adventures sometime, um, I invite you to go. So it's just easy to find me on Instagram. It's just Michael Yearly. Uh, all one word is my, my, uh, my tag there. So um, anyway, uh, uh, I want to invite you if you're, if you're interested in that. But uh, next week, Dre is going to be here. You know, one of the things I love about what God's doing at our church is how he's building this teaching team. And uh, we, we got to benefit from that with Joel last week. And I, I'm just such a big believer in this. The church is healthier when there's a team of teachers, not just one. And so if you're new here, I just want to share this philosophy with us. We just feel like the church is healthier in so many ways when you have multiple voices teaching. And we are so blessed to have uh, these other two teachers with us that uh, I, I just feel complete confidence. Whoever is teaching, man, the word is going out, right? And so uh, uh, Dre's going to be bringing the word next week. I look forward to, to uh, hearing that. And so uh, he'll continue in this series that we're in. So we're very, very excited about that. But we are going to go into our time of teaching now. If you haven't done so already, I know Scott mentioned it, but especially for those of you online, you know, depending on the format, it's either at the top message notes or down below message notes, but be sure to, to click on that because you'll definitely need it. So if you're all ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. So God, we're just excited to be here in the house, and we're, we're excited because we know that this is your place, and this is your day, and we are your people, and so we, we have confidence that when we gather in the name of Jesus, the power of the Lord will be there. Lord, and I was, as I was praying last night, Lord, just, that, just kind of reminding me that, that your word says that the kingdom um, does not consist in words, that it consists in power. And Lord, we all, we all know the difference of those times where we're reading your word or we're in a message like this and and all of a sudden, the words come off the page, or all of a sudden, we sense you speaking to, through us, through the spoken word. And, 
And, and that becomes a power moment. And how we respond to those moments is so critical. And so, Lord, we just pray that the power of the Lord would be present today. You would speak to us on the authority of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story starts today um, late at night. Um, it's, it's 11.30 at night. It's a December evening. And I'm home from college, from the Midwest, uh, from, from Chicago. Travel back to Southern California, where I've grown up. And I'm at my parents' house, who at this point in time are living in Orange County in Fountain Valley. I'm 19 years old. And that night, um, that uh, everyone had gone to bed, the house was completely quiet, and I was in the dining room, and I was reading the Word. And I came across a passage of Scripture that I had read many times before, but honestly, it never really spoken to me. In a sense, it had never even made sense to me, sort of unusual. But that night, as I was reading, there were two sentences that came alive. Two sentences that came off the page. And I don't know if you've ever had that happen. But a strong sense I was being spoken to. And it was both uh, beautiful and terrifying at the same time. But I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking. And he was waiting for my response. And I sat there transfixed like in a laser lock, looking at these two sentences on the page. And honestly, I couldn't say yes, but I couldn't say no. And I sat there for a half an hour from 11.30 to midnight. And by the end of that time, I was exhausted emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Well, today, we're continuing this series that we've been in now since last May. I had to look it up yesterday. It just seems like a long time. And, uh, and so this, this series is called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those of you brand new, uh, not only a special welcome, but a quick kind of, kind of quick intro that uh, this series is in-depth study of one of the most important letters in the New Testament for our time, I believe. And it's a, it's a letter written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. We call him Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers who have who've come to Christ about three years before in, the, uh, in a strategic, important Roman city in the southern tip of Greece named Corinth. And so we call this letter... Paul's letter to the of 1 Corinthians. And if you've been with us in this series, you know that, that, uh, that in the last few weeks, we've been in chapter 7. And so in chapter 7, what we learned is that the church of Corinth had recently sent the Apostle Paul a letter with some specific questions. And, and what we've been learning is that they, they live in the midst of a very pagan culture. Uh, a culture where the worship of, of gods is woven into the fabric of everyday life. And, and then, so they have a lot of specific questions about what does it look like to follow Jesus in the midst of this culture that we're a part of. And so if you, you were here the last few weeks, Paul began answering these questions in chapter 7. And the first questions he began to answer dealt with the topic of marriage, sex in marriage, singleness, divorce, and so on. And so we, we finished that last week, and Joel just did an amazing job. Didn't he do a great job last week? It was so awesome. I, uh, it, it's, uh, it's funny. I told him this week, it's like, what a great job he did. And I, I said, I, I wish as a church that we could stay on that message for four weeks in a row, because I just feel like this, this paradigm needs to shift of how we see singleness. And, and it's just like, like one week is not enough to shift it. You know, but I, I know we can't do that, but it's funny. It was a tough passage, and he did a great job. In fact, when I got home, uh, my, my wife was, uh, Lynn was at the service last Sunday at 11. When I got home in the afternoon after my Sunday noon, uh, afternoon hike, she said, I can't believe you gave him that message. Like, that was like such a tough passage. And I said, hey, let's step it up. You know, it's like you're new. Let's, here we go. But, uh, 
obviously I wanted Joel to, to teach on that because he'll be leading this singles ministry. And I thought not only was it an opportunity for, for him to teach a very powerful passage, but also to cast a little vision for where we're going in this ministry and, and why we're doing it. Um, but anyway, so, so last week we wrapped up chapter 7, dealing with these questions about marriage and singleness and divorce and so on. But, so this week we're entering into a new section um, where it's going to deal, the, the topic on the table is idolatry and, and how to follow Jesus in the midst of a culture where the worship of the gods is woven into the fabric of everyday life. And so before we jump into the passage in chapter 8, you know, this, this new, we're, we're jumping in this new section that starts in chapter 8 and goes through chapter 10. And before we jump in, I, I want to give us an intro to this entire section so we have kind of a big picture story of what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in first century Corinth. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, the Gods and Lords of Corinth, right? So let's just, let me share a few things. So one of the things that we learned very early in this series, if you were here back in May when we started, is that one of the reasons I love this letter of Corinthians is that, is that in many ways the culture of Corinth was very similar to the culture of Southern California. And one of the ways that it was similar was that it was a very pluralistic <laughs> culture when it came to their religion. And there were a million gods, a million different paths. Uh, we know that from, from history, from archaeology and so on, that there were at least the worship of 26 uh, different temples, not just worship of gods, but 26 different temples or sacred sites in Corinth itself, a city of about 80,000 people. In fact, in the second century, so a little bit after the time of Paul, there was a very famous Greek geographer uh, named Pausanias who visited Corinth and then wrote it up. And, and there in your note sheet, I put a quote from one of my favorite scholars' uh, commentary uh, on Corinthians, where he talks about this. He says, Pausanias, this geographer, he names a plethora, I want you to catch that, a plethora of deities that he found revered in Corinth. He's just going to give us a sampling. He said, for example, Kronos, uh, Poseidon. So we, we know that one, right? The uh, God of the ocean, some other things too. Uh, the sun, the worship of the sun, uh, the calm, <laughs> the sea, uh, Aphrodite. You may remember that in the opening weeks I share with this story about kind of I ran up the Acropolis, this, this huge mountain outside of Corinth. It's called the Acro Corinth, where on top was this, this temple to Aphrodite. And um, so Artemis, uh, Isis, which was well, one of the new mystery religions that was flowing from the east and from Egypt into the Roman Empire. Uh, Next, Dionysus, uh, a tree. That's a great one. They don't even capitalize that one. Um, Fortune, um, Apollo, Hermes, Zeus, and Asclepius. So Asclepius was the god of healing. And they would act in his temple, there'd be rooms for healing that you would go into there. Uh, Bunea and others. And what I want you to catch is that this listing is just the tip of the iceberg. In the Roman, in the Roman uh, Empire, remember, remember Corinth is a Roman city. In the Roman Empire, there are gods for everything. There are literally, and I'm not exaggerating, there are hundreds and perhaps thousands of gods. And there are gods for every part of life. There are gods of the city. There are gods of the country. There are gods of the empire. There are gods of childbirth. There are gods of marriage. There are gods of the field. There are gods of agriculture, gods of rain, gods of thunder. Uh, there are gods of drought. Uh, got that here. Um, there, are, uh, there, there are gods of war. There are gods of peace. And what I want you to catch is that in the ancient world, um, that these gods were woven, the worship of the gods was, uh, was woven into every part of daily life. There was no separation like of church and state or church like business and, uh, and, and the worship of the gods. For example, if you were to, uh, I, I remember a couple years ago, um, I was in Pompeii and walking through one of the estates, the Roman estates there, that there, like, right as you came into the door to my right was this niche area where, where the household gods would be. 
And so when you'd start your day, you would start your day perhaps with honoring the household gods. And then you leave and maybe you go to work. And if you worked in a guild, there would be a god of the guild, gods of the guild. And if you were to take a day off, it's a holiday. Every holiday was a holiday of certain gods. And so um, this was one of the reasons why in the early church, in the first 300 years of the church, persecution became such a big deal. Because because in the Roman Empire, the way, the way life was looked at is that the reason Rome is so blessed, the reason a city is blessed, a life is blessed, is because you honor the gods. So if you have someone who's not honoring the gods, like a Christian, this is not just a personal, private, religious decision. This affects everyone. You're putting the entire empire in jeopardy by not honoring the gods. Now, that sort of persecution had not yet come to Corinth, but in this sort of culture, becoming a follower of Jesus raised all kinds of practical questions. How do we follow Jesus in the midst of a culture where the worship of the gods is woven into every part of everyday life? And specifically, one of the big issues that they were wondering is, is what do we do when it comes to eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. So when you go into a pagan temple, they would have rituals, there'd be a sacrifice that you would be, have priests there, perhaps some guests, and the idea is that, that you, would, you would sacrifice that food and then you would eat it in fellowship with the God. Kind of much like for us, communion. Like we have this meal with our Lord. All right? And so the question is, okay, so this meat that's been sacrificed to idols that in the ancient world, catch this, most of the meat sold at the, lo the local butcher shop was from idols. It had been sacrificed. So the question is, hey, is it okay for me as a follower of Jesus to, to, to buy this meat that's been dedicated to the gods? Am I somehow participating in the worship of gods by eating the holy meat? Or what about this? If I go to a friend's house who's not a believer and they... They serve me and say, hey, just so you know, uh, this meat uh, was sacrificed to the gods. Like, like is it okay for me to eat it? Or, or do, am I communicating to them that it's okay to worship Jesus and worship the gods, which is what would be normal in, in Roman culture? Because in Roman culture, you wouldn't just worship one god, you worship many gods. Or what about this? In the ancient world, the restaurants of the ancient world were the temples, you have a big birthday celebration, you have a special uh, dinner, you, you may host that at a temple. And as you go in, the, so there's going to be, you're going to be participating, you're going to be eating this meat, and in a setting where these religious ceremonies of worship for the God has happened, and the whole scene is we're having fellowship with the God here. He's part of the meal. And, and so is that okay, or is it not okay? And so these are the kinds of questions they were writing and asking the Apostle Paul. And in these next three chapters, Paul is going to be answering some of those questions. But here's the thing. In our culture today, now this is not true around the world. Around the world, India, uh, in the Far East, I mean, these, these are still very real issues today. In our culture, most of us don't face this specific issue. But the good thing is, in these chapters, the Apostle Paul lays out some powerful principles about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of any culture. All right, so with that as an intro to this whole uh, three chapters, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. And uh, there in your note sheet is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, Love versus Knowledge. Today we're just going to be covering the first three, uh, three chapters, uh, first uh, seven verses. And so, um, so it starts off like this. Now, about food sacrifice to idols. So remember, they'd written him uh, these specific questions. Chapter 7 started out now about, uh, the, about, about kind of marriage issues. Now we're, we're kicking off here a new, this is kind of the way Paul signals, okay, we're moving on to the next question. Now about food sacrifice to idols. And so what you expect is at this point for him to begin to talk about food sacrifice to idols. But he doesn't. He, he starts with a, he, he puts, he's going to insert a very important and powerful sidebar that's going to lay out a principle that's going to guide us on how to make these tough decisions throughout these entire three chapters. And this sidebar has to do with the relationship between spiritual knowledge and love. 
And what Paul is basically going to say is as believers, sometimes the Lord will give us knowledge or insight about what is right and what is wrong. He says, but, but that's not good enough. When we're making decisions on, on how to live in some of these lifestyle type issues, it's not just a matter of whether it's right or wrong, but you need to, to look through the lens of how will your actions impact others in the body of Christ. So something may be right and technically fine for you, but under certain circumstances, you shouldn't exercise that right because it will actually damage someone else in the body of Christ. So, so the most important thing is not to be right on every issue. The most important thing is to, to love and to build up the body. So he's going to contrast knowledge and love. So the way he starts is the way he started back in chapter 6. Remember when he was talking about sexual immorality? Remember the way he, st- he started by quoting a soundbite that was going around in Corinth, and then he's saying, yeah, that's, there's some truth to that, but to, to really be accurate, we need to adjust it. We need to add or correct it. And he's going to do the same thing here. So he says, now, about food sacrifice to idols. You know, here comes the sidebar. He says, we know that, quote, so here's the soundbite that's going around in Corinth. We know that we all possess what? Knowledge. Knowledge. Now, this is going to become a very important word in these next three chapters. And it's a very important word in the vocabulary of the Corinthian church. Earlier in this series, you may remember back in chapter two and three, we, we came across a key word that was important for us to understand, to understand the Corinthians' mindset, and that was the word spiritual. You remember that? That they saw themselves as spiritual ones. Uh, the word in Greek was panumatikos. Some of you will remember that. And they saw themselves as spiritual. Now, why did they see themselves as spiritual? Well, when they came to Jesus, that not only did they come to Christ, but God poured out a wide array of powerful, supernatural gifts and experiences. For example, the gift of tongues, the ability to speak to God in a language you've not learned, and also gifts of revelation. Sometimes they're called a word or a message of knowledge or a word, a message of wisdom, where God is sort of downloading to someone in the church a a spiritual insight about life. And because of these powerful gifts and these insights, this knowledge, they saw themselves as very spiritual. And so what we learned back in chapter 2 and 3 is, remember what Paul said, no, the reality is you're not very spiritual, you're actually very fleshly, you're very immature spiritually. And what we learned back there is the true mark of spirituality, of spiritual maturity, is not powerful gifts and experiences as beautiful as those are, but the true mark of spiritual maturity is when we're transformed to be like Jesus, in our core character, and that core character that is revealed most, we see it most on his cross. This character of compassion, of humility, of courage, of service, right, of sacrifice. And so Paul's constantly calling to follow Jesus. So when we, we break into chapter 8 through 10, it's the same issue just kind of framed a little different way. These, there's many in the church that see themselves as very spiritual, the way they're approaching this issue, because they have this knowledge, this spiritual knowledge. And Paul's going to say, yeah, knowledge is great, but knowledge without love, it, it won't, won't work. And so he says, so yes, we all possess knowledge. Yes, that's true. As followers of Jesus, there's some basic knowledge that we have about God in Christ and our relationship, and he'll talk about that in a minute. He says, but knowledge what? It pops up. It tends to make us proud. He said, while love what? Builds up. So you see how he's contrasting knowledge and love. Yeah, we all have knowledge. We all need knowledge. That's important. But knowledge tends to make us proud. But love builds up the body of Christ. And he says, therefore, those who think they know something, talking to these spiritual elites who see themselves as so spiritual, Those who think they know something, they do not yet know as they ought to know. There's more to the story. But he said, but whoever loves God, that's the real key. Whoever loves God is known by God. So he says it's this love for God that leads to a love for one another, as we'll see 
that is a true mark of spiritual maturity. And so, so now he's kind of, he's introduced this principle that as we go through this issue, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul's going to say, hey, there is a right and wrong. And what we're going to learn is that it is okay to eat the meat in general because there's nothing wrong with the meat. But what he's going to say is, but it's not always okay to eat the meat because sometimes it's kind of a negative impact on others in the body of Christ. And so knowledge is important, but love, we always decide what to do based on love, what will build others up. Okay, and so he says uh, in verse four, so about eating food sacrificed to idols. So he's, he's, he's done with the sidebar. He's coming back to the topic, okay? So about eating food sacrificed idols, we know, and so to catch those words, we know. So he's going back to spiritual knowledge. We all have knowledge. So what do we know? He says, we know, and notes and quotes again. This is some of the sound bites. We know, first of all, that an idol is nothing in the world. Okay, so he says, yeah, we know that. As we come to Jesus, that all these idols, all these pagan gods that are worshipped in your culture every day, we know that there's idol is nothing. As followers of Jesus, yeah, that's part of what we know. And he says, secondly, here's the second quote, the sound bite. And we also know there is no God but one. So there's another soundbite. That, yeah, we, we're clear on this. We've come to Jesus. We no longer worship the gods. And then he says, for even if there are so-called gods, right, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, like here in Corinth, right? So quick sidebar here. These terms gods and lords are actually technical terms. So in the Roman Empire, most of the gods that are worshipped, the traditional gods, are called gods. But in these new mystery religions that are becoming so popular, like Isis or Serapis, they're not called gods, they're called lords. So you refer to Lord Serapis in, in that particular religion. So he says, so, so he says, so, so as indeed there are many gods or many lords, he says, yet for us as Christians, and now I want you to catch this, he's going into almost a creedal statement of the basic Christianity. What is this knowledge that we all have? He says, but for us, first of all, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, the ultimate source of creation. And then catch this, and I want you to underline this next line, and for whom we live. Can you underline that? We'll come back to that later. And then he says, and, kind of the second half of this creed, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, through, through whom was the actual agent of creation, and through whom we live. So he says it's kind of two parts to this this creed, right? There's one God, not many gods, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And then the second half of the creed, there's one Lord, like Jesus Christ. And that, that title, Lord, is a, a very high title. Because in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that was the most popular Bible in the early church or among Jews, it was called the Septuagint. It was written in Greek, you know, a Greek translation. And in the Old Testament, when the translators would come to the word Yahweh, that we know in our English Bibles is all caps, Lord, when they would come to that, they would use the Greek word kurios, or Lord, to translate Yahweh. And so when you're calling Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of the Old Testament is Jesus of the new, very high Christology. And so he says, so the second part is that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came. He's the, he's the agent of creation. And this is taught all through the New Testament, very consistently. And he says, and through whom we live. In other words, that through his death for us, we have new life, right? So he kind of, he says, yeah, this is the spiritual knowledge that we all have. This is Christianity 101. He says, yeah, we all get that. He's, he says, but, he says, some of the newer believers in your church, they're not going to be as clear on this. 
They've grown up their whole lives going to the temples, being participating in the sacrifices, eating the food that has been sacrificed to the idol, having fellowship with God in the temples. And he says, for these believers, they're not clear yet that it's okay to eat the food. And for them, if they go to a a butcher shop and they get this meat, if they go to someone's house and it's offered to them, for them, even though it's technically okay for them, it feels like fellowshipping with the gods. And for them, it would be wrong for them to do this. Because to do this would be to be like fellowshipping with Jesus at the Lord's table and fellowshipping with the gods. In Romans 14, Paul says something very similar. He says, hey, when it comes to these issues of eating meat or what days to worship on, uh, you're really free in Christ to do what you want. He says, but if you're not clear on that in your conscience, if you still feel it's wrong, he said, then for you it is wrong. He said, if you, if you believe something wrong, even if it's technically right, but you believe it's wrong and you do it, it is for you wrong. It, it's sin for you. And it's the same principle here. And so Paul says, hey, we may have this knowledge about our freedom. There's one God, one Lord, there's other, these other guys. He says, but not everyone is clear on that. And so we want to be very careful that when we are eating, we're not leading a brother who's not clear to do something that would be a violate their conscience and compromise their loyalty to Christ, which would destroy them. And that's what he says next in verse 7. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone in the church is clear on this. He says, some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think it is having sacrifice to God, and since their conscience is weak, which is his way of saying they're not, they're not clear on the right and wrong of this. Since their conscience is uh, weak, uh, they, they think of it, uh, since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Right? And so next week he's going to unpack this more and talk about different situations that you'll find yourself in and how you should, how you should think about this and how you should respond. Some very powerful principles Uh, for us uh, in our culture right now, especially in the Christian church. And as you can imagine, Christians in the church of Corinth disagreed on this. They disagreed whether it's okay to eat this meat. And I know this seems super weird because at our time, Christians always agree on controversial issues. (laughs) I mean, you think back to COVID, racial issues, Black Lives Matter, politics. I mean, today, Christians are really united we never fight over these kinds of things. But this was an issue they had, right? So, so thank God we don't have those issues today. Anyway, so next week we'll be uh, unpacking that. Dre will be unpacking that, and I'm really looking forward to it. They're uh, very excited about that. But uh, what I want to do today in the time that we have is I, I want to kind of focus in on one section of this creed that Paul just recited that I think is incredibly important for us to understand for our lives. What does it mean, really, to be a follower of Jesus? When someone comes to Christ, what does that mean? And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, Christianity 101. And what I want to do is I want to go back to this creed that we just read in chapter 8 and verse 6. And I want you to notice there are two parts to this creed. All right? We, we may, you may even draw a line on your, in your, as we read it, but there's kind of two parts of the creed. The first part of the creed deals with God, God the Father, the second with God the Son. All right? So the first part of the creed, he says, yet for us as followers of Jesus, there is but one God, not many gods, and from whom all things came, the ultimate source of creation. And then underline this next line, for whom we live. Okay? We're going to come back to that line. So that's the first part of the creed. It's about God the Father, right? And then the second part is is about God the Son. And so he says, and there is but one Lord. Remember this high Christology, like kurios, the name used for God. For us, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ means Messiah. Through whom all things came and through whom we live, right? So there's kind of two parts to this, this, uh, this, this, uh, 
this creed, and you can kind of draw a complete line uh, under uh, there is but what I mean uh, under for whom we live. And so the the first half deals with who God is, God the Father. The second half with God the Son. And what I want you to catch is in this short creed that it not only tells us what Christians believe with our heads, it tells us how we live with our hearts. And this comes from this one phrase that I've asked you to underline a couple times. It comes from the first half of the creed. For us there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came. And then he says, and for whom we what? Okay, good. Now, this goes to the heart of the gospel of Jesus. Right? The story of the Bible, the story of our race, is a story of a, of a race that was created to live for our creator. This was our joy. It was our freedom. It was our path to life. But when we rebelled, thinking that we could get more life by following the evil one, when we rebelled, like the bone, our, the spiritual bone in our life was broken. It was like a broken bone. And so, so you and I are now, we're born with a bent towards rebellion. We're born with this, this bent to live for ourselves, not for God, not for the creator. And what I want you to catch at the heart of the gospel is not just that Jesus came to die for us so that we could have new life, the second part of the, of the creed. At the heart of the gospel is this bigger story about how, how Jesus has come so we can be transformed, that our heart can be restored, that we can live for our creator again. And that that is a path to freedom, and that is a path to life. And so this leads to a very important question. And there in your note sheet, we're going to spend some time on this, Christ, culture, and the cross, the key question. And so I want to ask the question, and then I want to flesh this out and spend some time on it. And so, so the, here's the question I, I want you to write down as we're getting started today. The question is, who are you living for? Now, this is an extremely important question. I, if, if I asked, uh, if I asked uh, you know, the, the, uh, Christians in general in our culture, kind of interview, man on the street sort of interview, um, what does it mean? You, you're a Christian, right? Yes. Okay. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian? Right? So this is a Bible-believing type Christian, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think that most people would go immediately to the second half of the creed. And they would say, well, to be a Christian is to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and to, um, that, that he is the creator of all things and that through him we can have new life through his death on the cross so that we can be restored to relationship with God and we can live with him forever. And I would say that's absolutely true as far as it goes. But what I want you to catch is only the second half of the creed. It's not the first half. The first half of the creed is that, that this is about coming back to our creator and being restored to relationship so we no longer live for ourselves but for him. And this is very interesting because in American Christianity that often we have ignored this first half of the creed. In fact, I could imagine talking to many who would call themselves followers of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And they might even say, yeah, I've, I've asked Jesus into my life to be my savior so I could live through him but I've not yet surrendered my life to him as Lord. As if that were an option. Are you with me here? It's like we have cut the creed in half. And we bought into the second while ignoring the first. And here's what, you want, what you'll see. 
As you look through the New Testament, as you study the teaching of Jesus, as you study the teaching of Paul, as you study the teaching of Peter, as you study the, teach you, the teaching of uh, James, as you study the, the te- of, of John, they're, they're not, they teach the whole creed. And you see it over and over. And if we had about three hours, I'd love to do a long Bible study like just kind of laying this out. We don't have, but what I want to do is I want to focus on three statements that the Apostle Paul makes in other contexts that help us understand what the gospel really looks like, the full gospel. And so there in your note sheet, the first passage you want to look at is Romans 14. So this is a passage, we may be even studying this in our life group the next week or two because it's a very similar passage to this 1 Corinthians 8, this whole issue uh, the Church of Rome is like, is it okay for us to eat anything or do we have to eat kosher to follow Jesus? Is it okay to worship whatever day we want or does it have to be the Sabbath? And so Paul says, oh, actually, we have freedom in Christ. He says, but not everyone's as clear on this yet. Um, and, and so, you know, people, he says, so, so you need to honor and love and respect one another, even if they're wrong on these issues. Like love is more important than being right on these secondary issues. And in that context, this is what he says. He says, hey, you know, don't condemn one another. He says, because none of us, as followers of Jesus, notice this is like basic Christianity, none of us, this is true for all, none of us live for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live what? For the Lord. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't matter whether you eat food, you eat the meat, or don't eat the meat, or you worship on Sunday. Like, well, this is just Christian. We, we all live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we what? We belong to the Lord. This is Christianity 101. When we come to Jesus, we transfer ownership. We no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves. We belong to the Lord. Now we live for him. Remember we saw this back with the slaves? He said, yeah, the one who's the Lord's freedman in chapter six or chapter 7 is the Lord's slave. We, we live for him. Let's look at the second passage. The second passage is in Romans 11. So this comes at a critical turning point in the whole letter. The first 11 chapters, Paul is kind of laying out the big picture story of the human race and the story of Jesus and how God has rescued us in spite of our rebellion. And, uh, he, and in chapter 12, he's going to get really practical. What does it look like and then to follow Jesus? But he wraps up the first 11 cha- chapters. It's like he's just taken, he's just overtaken with praise for the, the wisdom of God and how God has worked in human history to rescue us. And so he, he, he writes this long doxology of praise to God. And this is how he ends it. He says, for from him, talking about God, for from him and through him, you know, the, the creator and what? And for him are all things. Let's just read that whole thing together. This is like a creedal statement, right? Let's read it together. For from him and through him and for him are all things. See, this is the gospel. This is why Jesus came. Not just so he could be forgiven and stay broken. He came to restore to reset the broken bone of rebellion. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who created us. And this is the path to life. This is the path of freedom. This is a path to fulfillment. Look at the last passage. This is perhaps the strongest one. It's from 2 Corinthians 5, a very famous passage about what God has done for our salvation in Christ. In fact, how this passage ends is a very famous verse. Paul says, he he made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. This is through him we have life. That's the second half of the creed. But look at the first half of the creed. A few verses up in verse 15, he says, he died for all, talking about Jesus. He died for all. If we stop there and you couldn't read on, you say, why did he die? We would go to the second half of the creed so that we could live. But look what Paul says. He died for all. Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
This is the whole gospel. That he died for us so we could be forgiven? Yes. But he died for us so that the broken bone of rebellion could be reset. So we could become the people we are created to be. See, eagles are designed to soar. Lions are designed to roar. Salmon are designed to swim upstream. And we are designed to live for our creator. Are you with me? And when you see an eagle soaring, it brings glory to God. And when you see that, you listen to a lion roar in the forest. It brings glory. And when you watch the salmon do the impossible, swimming upstream to give their life for the next generation, you say, incredible. And when you see a man or woman who's been restored, living no longer for themselves, but for the creator and for others, you say, that's what life is all about. Amen. 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 Now, here's the thing that what I've found is that when many of us, probably most of us, come to Jesus, we don't realize this. It's often because the way the gospel is presented, the way the gospel is presented is the second half of the creed. And so we come to Jesus, we trust him for our salvation, and we come alive in Christ, but we don't really surrender our lives uh, to him in a life of obedience. Like we, we almost think like that's the optional equipment on the Christian life. And so we, we often, it takes us a while to learn this. We go through life often with one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. And we're, we obey Jesus in certain areas of our life. And we don't obey him in other areas of our life. And we are still in the control center. We're acting as if we belong to ourselves, And then we have the right to make that decision. And so when it makes sense to us to follow Jesus, we follow Jesus. We think that will make life better. And when it doesn't make sense to follow Jesus, we say, no, I'm not going to follow you in this area because I think life will be better. At the end result of that, men and women, is we never really experience the presence and the power and the leading of God in our lives. It's like we have cut the juice to our Christian life. And so we, we can't figure it out. Like, where's the power in my life? How come I'm not being transformed? We always talk about transformation, but if I look back five years, I feel pretty much the same. What about my relationships? They're, they're a wreck. My marriage is a wreck. Yeah, we're both Christians, but our marriage is a wreck. Our kids are a wreck. Our finances are a wreck. My passions really haven't changed. I'm still passionate about these things and not these things. When I read the word, it doesn't really speak to me. I know, I know Michael talks about having a regular rhythm of a relationship, but it just, just doesn't work for me. I don't really like to pray. It's like, uh, it's like the, the power's not there. And the core of it is we've never embraced the gospel. We've embraced the second half. We've never surrendered the first half. And so sometimes in our life, you know, God has to bring us to a critical crossroad in our life. And at these crossroads, often God reveals the idols in our life that are in the temple of God. Remember how we're the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's like we're the temple, but like Israel of old, we brought idols into the temple. And we can't understand why the presence of God is not there. But we have idols in the temple. Are you with me? You following this? And so, so what is an idol? An idol is whatever is your ultimate value in life. What is your ultimate value in life? That is your idol. 
I've talked about this before, but like one way that helps me conceptualize this is I talk about the seven P's of idolatry. And what's really interesting as we sit in this room is that for, for, for every one of us, our, our idols or our temptation to bow down to something else will vary. The idol that really appeals to one person doesn't really appeal to, just like in Corinth, you'd have all these different gods, you, you bow down to different ones. But let me give you these seven Ps, just as a kind of an easy way to remember them, to, to process them. And let me, as I go through them, just use it as like a mental checklist. Like, which of these idols are you most likely to bow down to and to live for rather than living for the Creator? Like, so the first P is the P of persons, like a person. Like, like for many of us, one of the greatest gods of American culture is the God of romance. It's in all of our songs. You listen to popular songs and that they're almost always about the person that's making their life worthwhile or they're about how I just lost the person. That's me. It's, it's like, it's part of our culture. We deeply embed in our culture is the key to life is finding a great romance. It's a person. For others, maybe it's, it's not just that romance, but it's, it's the marriage, like Joel talked about last week, if I could just get married. For others, it's, it's, it's more than that, it's the family and just the kids. For others, it could be friends, but if, it's something to do with people. A second P would be the P of possessions. And again, some of you, this will be like, oh yeah, that's me, others, not at all. But for some people, the idol we're tempted to bow down is the pursuit of possessions. That if I, if I could just... If we can just get that house, if we could just get the carpets done, if we could just get that new car, if we could just get that cabin in the mountains, if we just buy that new boat, it has these certain toys that, that it's like our life, we, we run after accumulation. And though we never say it this way, we, we tend to believe that, that if I bow down to this, if I pursue this, and if I can attain this, life will be good. That's kind of the mark of an idol. You know, an idol is whatever we bow down to, we pursue as our ultimate value because we believe that it will make life worth living if we serve that. A third P is a P of position. If I could just make the band as I'm growing up, if I could just make the team, if I could just make first string on the team, if I could just get into this college, if I could just make it into med school, if I could just get into law school, if I could just become a partner at the firm, there's some sort of position that we're running after, we take our identity from. And if I could just achieve that. For others, it's the P of power. There's some sort of position of power over others that we want in the company, in a marriage, in some sort of situation. We're, we're driven by power. You think of like Putin in Russia, right? It's like it's just a picture of uh, a hunger for power. This is one of the most dominant gods of the human race is power. Uh, next P is a P of pleasure. For some people, life, the idol is all about attaining, pursuing pleasure. And it can just be raw pleasure like, like sexual promiscuity or drugs or alcohol. But it could be at the other extent, the pleasure of the, the fine things of life. It's fine wines. It's fine clothes. It's fine experiences. It's, it's art. It's, it's just this aesthetic pleasure is the meaning of life. For others, it's the P of popularity. I, I just want to stay popular. I just want people to like me. And if I could just get in with this in crowd, or if we could just hang with these couples, or if we could just uh, be, kind of win these accolades, if I, could just, if I could just become an influencer on Instagram, or if I just get certain likes from my friends, and I'm telling you, it's like, if we get it, we're happy. And if we don't, we're depressed. No one likes me. It's a mark of an idol. When we don't get our idol, it leads to depression. And then the last P, I just call it the P of pursuit, which is a, kind of a catch-all. Maybe it's not one of these things. Maybe your thing is rock climbing or 
maybe our thing is skydiving, or maybe the thing is some sort of hobby that you have, but whatever it is, it's like our ultimate value in life. And so the point is that sometimes the Lord has to um, create a crossroad event in our life that reveals this idol where you have to answer this question, will you live for me or will you live for your idol? You know, today we started the day with a story from my own life. When I was 19, home from college, and uh, sitting at our table, dining room table, 11.30 at night, everyone's in bed, I was just reading the Word, and I came across a passage I'd read many times before. But all of a sudden, it was just like those words were like bold, on the, like highlighted on the page. It was a familiar passage we've studied in this series. It was back in chapter 6, uh, 1 Corinthians. A topic on the table of sexual immorality, though that's not how this was applying, how the Lord was speaking to me. But there in your note sheet, you remember this, he said, don't you, do you not know? And remember that's Paul saying, hey, don't be an idiot. He says, do you not know, like you should know by now, that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. And he said, who is in you, whom you've received from God? And it was the next two sentences or next two phrases that this laser lock. As I was reading there, it's like they came alive. And the Holy Spirit said, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And can I tell you, that moment, it became very clear to me that up to that point in my walk with Jesus, I'd always asked him for his direction, always asked for his wisdom. But it was sort of like I would ask him what to do, and then I would decide whether to do it or not. And in that moment, it's like the Holy Spirit was saying, that phase is over. You belong to me. All your choices belong to me. And can I tell you, it was absolutely terrifying. And when we come to these crossroads, it always is. Because what we really believe is this idol will make us happy. It's very scary for us. And I sat there literally 30 minutes in a laser lock, could not move, staring at those two statements. And I felt like there was no way I could say yes because I was giving up my very life. But there's no way I could say no because I'd come too far and I'd tasted too much of the goodness of the Lord. And you say, well, what happened? I'm not gonna tell you what happened. <laughs> you know why? Because this is not about my story. This is about your story. And the question is, who will you live for? And so many times, we can't figure out why life is not working. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we brought different gods into the temple. And we are calling ourselves Christian and bowing down to these other gods. And we can't understand why the Spirit of God is not filling the temple. It's very easy. We've embraced the second half of the creed while ignoring the first half. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. So, Father, we pray now as we go into this time of communion that this would just be a beautiful time of soul searching. Lord, as you know, we're going to be singing this song, I Surrender. The song that I know when we're in Israel, we always sing this in the Garden of Gethsemane because you, you're the ultimate model of what it looks like to say, not my will, but yours. You're the ultimate model of what it looks like to live for another.
and you're the ultimate model of who you call us to be, this path that leads to freedom and fulfillment, where we begin to soar like the eagle, where we begin to roar like the lion. We have the strength to swim upstream against culture. We begin to experience your presence and power, but it all flows out of these moments of deep surrender, where we surrender control of our life. Like you said, the one who holds on to their life will lose it, but the one who loses their life, for my sake, they will find it. It's all the way through the New Testament over and over again. Paul's statement in Romans 1 that we're, that you call them to be apostle to bring the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. The apostle Peter writing, grace and peace to you who've been chosen before time for a life of obedience and to be sprinkled by the blood. It's everywhere. And we try to live our life as if we belong to ourselves. It just doesn't work. Our marriages don't work. Our relationships don't work. We can't overcome the sin in our life. Our passions are wrong. And it all goes back. We've embraced the second half of the creed, not the first. And so, Lord, as we come to the communion table, we celebrate the second half of the creed that you died for us so that we might live. We pray that today would be a day of renewed surrender to you, that we belong to you, we live for you, we sacrifice the idols, we, we ask you to expose any idols in our temple, that we can clean them out like Josiah did in the Old Testament, and cleanse the temple so the temple could be filled with your presence again. And so we pray, Lord, this would be a holy moment as we worship you now. In Jesus' name.